Sandra asks, When I sent you my penis, why did you leave me on read? Well, the answer is, Sandra, is that I was not impressed with your performance. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Tengri Dome. I'm your host, Iggy. And seeing as nothing of note really happened last week, uh, and uh, the upcoming event is going to be covered extensively by Danny and Sriram on the Analysis Podcast, I figured why not make a, a little bit of a Q&A session episode this week, so that uh, my audience may get to know me better and vice versa, and I'd answer various uh, direct questions uh, our listeners may have concerning combat sports, uh, current sport news and their applications, etc., etc. I was also pretty open to suggestions as to which uh, topics um, our listeners would like me to cover in the form of either a bonus podcast or a normal of week one when nothing of note is really happening. And there were some questions that warrant their own episode. But uh, I would cover the questions... Uh, I would cover those questions briefly so that uh, you might know you might get a better idea of what I'm going to to be talking about going forward. The questions were posted in our Discord, which you can join for as little as five dollars per month on our Patreon. And if you have any questions regarding fighting or culture of fighting or fighting news or anything combat sports related, really, consider joining our Patreon. Last week, our Video analyst Julian Lung covered uh, the Crazy Bee gym and their fighting style in detail, which was a direct Patreon request from our from our esteemed Patreon and big friend of the site AB, which you may check out as soon as you join our Patreon for as little as three dollars per month, which grants you access to all of the Patreon content we've been putting out uh, during the course of our. Uh, during the time our site uh, has been active, you can learn the full extent of uh, Patreon benefits by checking out our Patreon at uh, patreon.com dash fightsite. But uh, if you want to ask a smaller question that uh, you feel doesn't warrant an entire Q&A episode, then feel free to post them in the comments section on YouTube. I am planning on adding a Q&A section at the end of uh, most episodes I'm going to publish uh, going forward. But regardless, our patrons were very uh, enthusiastic in posting, the, uh, those, uh, posting their questions, and uh, some, of them were, uh, some of them had a sort of a, an, an overlap uh, between them, and uh, many of them were very interesting. So if you think that uh, this, doesn't, <laughs> this episode won't concern you or catch your attention in a, in a way, any way, shape or form, then uh, bear with me, please. There were, quite, uh, there were some quite good ones. The first question was... Uh, well, the first question was... <laughs> the first question was the penis question, which I've answered, which uh, I was hope uh, fairly informative enough. But... Uh, in order not to offend Sandra's sensibilities, I'm going to actually uh, uh, give a bit of a more uh, a more extended answer. So yes, yeah, Sandra, that was a really nice cock, bro. That uh, it was a little bit on the small side, you know, but uh, the shape was 
The shape is overall pretty symmetrical, and your balls have just the right amount of hair. So my verdict is uh, a light to a decent 7. Hope that satisfies you, mate. But in all seriousness, the first question was uh, the greatest Mongolian fighter, in my opinion, and uh, why is Mongolian throat singing so cool? And uh, a bit of a... Uh, there was a bit of a tie-in question from another patron of ours. Uh, he asked me if I, whether I follow any sumo, and uh, he knows that most Rikishi are Mongolian. Uh, <laughs> I suppose the fact that I am actually Mongolian is a very... Uh, I seem very exotic to my listeners <laughs> in that respect, uh, which uh, which is pretty endearing, I suppose. And there was a question about Mongolian wrestling, so I suppose it's, it's a bit of a, uh, I suppose it's a bit of a topic in itself, which I'm going to answer in detail a bit later. Let's now let's let's examine the. Somewhat less complex ones, for the time being. Because examining all this stuff is, uh, requires a bit of a deep dive, you know? It's, I mean, it's an entire culture. This one isn't really from a patron, but rather from a staff member, uh, a fellow staff member, uh, Matt, who asked me how effective will a specialist be in the next five years in MMA, and what adaptations would you advise as a specialist to make to maintain their relevancy? God damn it. <laughs> I mean, this one this one also warrants an entire episode in itself. I mean, this is such a such an extensive such an extensive topic to cover. I mean, when you think about it, it concerns divisional meta, concerns MMA fundamentals, concerns uh good strategizing, game planning, all all that nitty gritty nuts and bolts stuff. Which techniques are you going to pick? Ah. Well, thank God that I have actually written an entire article covering MMA fundamentals, which you can check out on our website. It's called DUC's Meatpacking Plan Part 3. Gotta take one to take one. Which is a reference to Dominic Cruz's uh, annoying tendency to talk, to prattle on and on about uh, how you how a true fighter must take one in order to land one because this is this is this is something that takes real guts from a fighter and uh finally enough the person that uh, generally takes one to land one doesn't actually land one so it's uh the name should be obvious from my explanation it should become obvious from my explanation rather well yeah my point was that is that every fighter must have a solid grasp on fundamentals and by fundamentals i mean uh, ringcraft and footwork, strictly speaking. Those two are the most essential ones. And a fighter must be able to answer the questions of uh, where does he want to find the fight to go, why he wants the fight to go there, and through which means, uh, that is, how he's going to accomplish this feat. And I've talked about, for example, early career Justin Gagey, who, uh, who's, uh, who was a pressure fighter. And uh, I hope... Uh, I hope he still remains a pressure fighter. He still has that skill set that he can fall back on in uh, in case his uh, distance-based counterpunching doesn't work out, which is uh, surely going to come in handy against Habib. But that's you know neither here nor there, and the topic in itself. But yeah, the point is that where does uh, Justin want the fight to go? 
He is. Uh, he wants to pressure his guy to defense. Why? Because he has a shitty eyesight, and an opponent that's moving backwards is uh, much less offensively potent. Which is uh, which is great for him because uh, he wants to stay within striking range, where he can either feel the strikes coming with his guard or try to see them coming, and cuts the time you need in order to make. Well, that's the, that's the thing with pressure fighters. If you're pressuring. It cuts the time you need to make your reads in half because you're the one uh, making stuff happen. Your your opponent has to answer you with a offense uh, if he doesn't want to get smashed. The question of how is uh, that, uh, well, if you're just engaging, you're going to th- use the threat of your massive hitting power and your cage-cutting footwork to cut off escape routes and blast leg kicks to limit your opponent's mobility. And then you use the threat of your hitting power to actually hit him lots. What relevancy does this have for specialists? Well, Justin Gagey is a specialist, essentially. He's, a, he's a, basically a pure striker in MMA. So using him uh, as an example, and uh, maybe... Well, if you have a solid grasp on your fundamentals, it, uh, it uh, eliminates the need for you to become... Uh, basically good at everything, because fundamentals are, are not an assortment of techniques, it's a, it's a bit more of a, it's more of a conceptual thing. And whatever tools you use in order to accomplish those, uh, to, for, to uh, implement those conceptual things in practice, uh, depends on your attributes, aptitudes, and your build, uh, all sorts of parameters. So the real answer is, I suppose, is that specialists will always remain relevant. Because because you can't really become uh, good at everything unless you're a truly a special individual. So every fighter, in a sense, is going to remain a specialist. And seeing as how success, successful specialist champions are, it's uh, almost preferable to be, uh, to, to be a specialist rather than be, you know, a sort of a jack-of-all-trades uh, all-rounder because they sort of see uh, see them like if you look at uh, lightweight in its current state it's uh, uh, sort of mediocre all-rounders are dime a dozen in that uh, in that division and uh, I don't see any of them really moving forward in any meaningful respect moving up the rankings in any, in any meaningful respect so on uh, Using the example of those champions that used uh, they, that exploit the divisional meta and uh, w- the general tendencies that uh, fighters in their divisions exhibit, say for example someone like Max Holloway, who was essentially geared to exploit uh, Jose Aldo's uh, anti-wrestling game, exploit his anti-wrestling and counter-punching game. Now, someone like Khabib, who exploits uh, the overall MMA meta of using uh, defense as a as a form of uh, uh, wrestling defense, uh, takedown defense, uh, as a as a as a means of uh, getting off the ground with the wall walk by turning the wall walk into an attacking position for him. The answer becomes pretty clear. You must. Uh, you must know your sense of direction, in which uh, the, in which direction you want the fight to go, and uh, 
you know, you must understand your division of matter to such an extent that uh, would allow you to pick the specific the specific tools you're going to need in order to stay relevant. Because really, oftentimes fighters uh, usually have uh, uh, the most successful fighters do not have a very extensive arsenal of weapons. They have depth, and depth is a concept that uh, Danny Martin explained uh, explored in. Uh, Extensive detail in his uh, post-fight breakdown of uh, Israel Desani versus Paulo, Paulo Costa. And uh, depth in this case is just using a, a set number of tools that play off each other in complementary ways that would, uh, in, uh, that would allow tools, an arsenal of tools that would allow you to play them off each other and uh, not just, you know, throw shit at a wall. I suppose this is a bit of a, you know, no toast answer, because uh, there are not a lot of concrete things I might uh, I might suggest. Outside of, uh, you know, standing, uh, remaining, staying mindful of uh, the division, of the division of matter, and, uh, and always being, always staying mindful of the tools that you're uh, drilling, and picking, and conversely exploiting the divisional meta too much would lead you to a situation where you're so uh, geared towards that particular meta that uh, whenever someone comes in with a game plan to exploit your uh, uh, exploit your style, you you might get the caught off guard, which sort of ties back to the uh, Gage versus Habib fight. Because Khabib exploits the divisional meta so much, it essentially gives uh, Gagey the most solid path to victory out of all uh, lightweight contenders, because he doesn't really use defense as a means of defending takedowns. Most of his work is done in the open space. Most of his work is done in the open space, rather. And yeah, this question really warrants uh, an entire episode. This is becoming sort of a theme with all these questions. <laughs> I may really need to sit down and think about it. It may warrant not really an episode, but an entire article, you know? But yeah, the answer for now is that even if you are a specialist, study the fundamentals, study your fundamentals, and pick, uh, pick your style, gear it towards the skill set and attributes that you already have, and just keep increasing your depth and your efficacy with those tools that you already have. And whenever you hit a, a ceiling, take a step back and reevaluate whatever tools that you're using and what uh, what plays off what plays off each other, what plays what thing plays off the other thing, and in what way and what that what that uh, what are the impl implications of you using that tool? Like for example. Uh, uh, a style geared that uh, revolves around using the threat of a, say, a single leg. Many fighters know how to limp leg out of single legs now, so the natural progression for that would be uh, to chain wrestle and uh, to progress into a double, or to build off the, the uh, your opponent's tendency to, to limp leg out to follow up with uh, some form of strike. 
And if your opponent uh, keeps using the wall walk in order to defend, uh, in order to get off the bottom, then exploit that. And if the divisional meta is moving away from the wall walk uh, back to the open space, then that just brings you back to square one, you know? I suppose I'm operating with a bit of a broader definition of specialist in, in this respect, because I think uh, when it comes to specialist, there's... Uh, you're not go really going to see, like, pure... I mean, we already don't uh, kind of... We already sort of don't see... We're, we're already moving away from specialist in terms of being a pure wrestler or a pure grappler. I mean, my colleagues may debate me on this, but I think... With the growing understanding of MMA fundamentals, we're moving towards an era where we're going to see a more, I suppose, traditional sort of... Um, uh, division between styles in, in terms of being whether you're a pressure fighter, whether you're a counter fighter, etc, etc. And so we're going to see specialists in that of that mold where we, they're using their knowledge of fundamentals to gear their style towards a broader uh, towards a broader more conceptual towards broader concept that they're going to implement with a, with a more cohesive game. But there are certainly caveats to this, as uh, it is always the case with fighting. I mean, like, there's always cases where a fighter comes up, comes in with a weird sort of guard or weird sort of uh, ability to chain together attacks, like going from, for example, I say, let's say, high kicks into into takedowns, or let's let's go for a really weird combination, like say low kicks from up close into snap downs and that's going to shake up and that's going uh and this the efficacy of this tool is always going to give you a certain edge where not many people actually know how to deal with it so like this is another way you can go about uh, remaining uh, stay about staying relevant uh as a specialist in your division just 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 be weird but yeah, I think this warrants further examination. So, let's move on. What's something that would greatly improve the heavyweight meta? Hmm. This is a question from our Discord patron, with the nickname of Spent Sir. And it's immediately followed up with a reply of from another Discord patron uh, by the nickname of Sigman. Combined, combine heavyweight and light heavyweight. Well... Uh, you know, I'm not so sure about that one. Really, the heavyweight meta is just, uh, it's kind of, can you even describe it as a meta? Because uh, when you think about it, uh, it's just, the, the real answer to all problems at heavyweight is just be durable. And have enormous punching power, which most of these heavyweights actually really do have. And uh, maybe... Maybe no slightly more than just how to throw right hands, you know. This is something I've that I've argued on my previous uh, Twitter account that got nuked with uh, Connor Rebush of um, Heavy Hands, and Rebush pointed out that, uh, well, in fact, Rebush recorded an entire bonus episode in the wake of our discussion. That's essentially stated all the things that I've already said, but using twice as many words. So, Connor Rebush, if you're listening to this, 
If we meet on the field of battle, I'm going to seek you out. Well, yeah, the thing with Heavyweight is that uh, it's been covered extensively elsewhere in the podcasts, on, in Jack Slack's podcast and Heavy Hands and whatever other shows that are dedicated to fight analysis. But the thing with Heavyweight is just uh, that there's not enough money in fighting. Uh, most athletic, uh, really gifted heavyweights move to move towards other more financially and uh, otherwise rewarding sports, such as uh, basketball, football. Uh, by football, I mean American football, rugby, whatever. Anything but fighting. And most of the heavyweights that are currently in uh, in MMA are just just big dumb lads that. Uh, came across a person and that that person just went have oh, a fucking hell you're 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 a big lad you must be good at fighting you must be handy in a scrap just why not try out MMA or boxing or whatever the real outlier here is uh is uh men's heavyweight wrestling where they actually they're actually uh, they actually really are good but wrestling is an outlier compared to MMA in a lot of respects, uh, and compared to boxing, when, uh, when when if you look, for example, at women's wrestling, they actually are world class, and it's not just the commentators being nauseatingly patronizing, uh, putting on a fake smile and talking about how high level they are, they are or how accomplished they are. Like whenever Holly Holm uh, is. Uh, on her 50th lap around the cage <laughs> while uh, Michelle Waterson is just uh, is busy fighting air trying to relearn trying to reconnect with her past lives and relearn the art of air bending or showing us how to maintain uh, how to properly maintain social distancing <laughs> and like most of the better heavyweights are very athletic in their own right. I'm not saying that most of them are just uh, fat sacks of shit that can't move faster than a, than a <laughs> faster than that McDonald's chick from that viral video that uh, kicked uh, some, some guy's ass by throwing him around uh, the entire stall, the entire restaurant rather. And the, the problem with that is that, well, seeing as uh, bigger people are not as common as. Uh, you know, regular-sized people, and in fighting, the margin is even smaller. You get situations where, like, uh, a giant heavyweight uh, just uh, just has no one to train with, uh, no one to spar against, and as such, the technical efficacy suffers. Which brings us to this stupid argument of, uh, well, one shot can end it all, and as such, heavyweights are just. And that's why heavyweights are just so shit at defending themselves, which makes no sense. Yeah, this guy may kill me with one shot. Better have no defense and just swing my swing right hands at him. And uh, it ties back to the problem with MMA overall. is just uh, the lack of in- internalization of uh, MMA fundamentals or fighting fundamentals across all camps. Heavyweights are essentially... Uh, just uh, the more the most egregious case uh, in that respect, where they're just thrown into the cage and just told to do, to, to just be be yourself, baby, and uh, that's the case with all with most MMA fighters. Just 
I'm trying to be the best me. I'm not game planning against my uh, against a particular opponent. And that's why Stipe Miocic turned out to be so successful is that he always comes up with certain with a certain some something that will help him against a specific opponent. Uh, be it say JDS or Overeem or Ganu or DC, he always has always uh, has something in store. He at, he at least puts the minimum the minimum effort into thinking about what uh, is going to be effective against uh, his opponent. It's not always the best tool. Uh, it's not even the right idea, but uh, at least he thinks about it. So the the easiest answer, the easiest way to improve heavyweight meta is to just, you know, uh, have uh, have coaches make, have coaches think, you know, and uh, kind of be really strict with their, their uh, with their pupils, with their heavyweight pupils in particular, to just hammer home the point about uh, that you kind of have to kind of have to use your brain a little every once in a while. Which is, uh, it sounds easy on paper, but when you think at uh, how how dumb your average MMA fighter is and how dumb your average heavyweight fighter, and then you, and when you realize that your heavyweight fighter is uh, on average twice as dumb as your normal MMA fighter, then it's kind of it becomes a bit of a tall task. <laughs> oh yeah, I suppose that's my answer. That uh, kind of sort of ties back to the previous uh, question. Where you just. Uh, think about fighting. Think about what you're doing. And MMA coaches just don't do that. And it uh, just drives me up the wall, this whole situation. Miguel asks, Maybe you could talk a bit about ACA. You probably have some unique insights into the organization. Well, you, you know, uh, most of the stuff um, about ACA is uh, kind of self-evident. I mean... It's a. I mean, it, it, it's also another topic that warrants a, a separate, uh, like a separate examination. But I suppose the TLDRs that you know, it's a. It's an organization run by a dictator. With all that entails. I'm not going to have some form of unique insight simply because I understand Russian, and I speak Russian. Of course, there are caveats to there. To, to this, because I have some cultural insights that uh, outside observers may not, may not have. And this was a question that Miguel quickly followed up with. I am also curious to learn more about combat sports in, in the Caucasus. Why they produce so many high-level talents across multiple combat sports to different ethnic groups and their relationships to each other, and how those relationships, as well as the influence of the political environment, could have an influence on combat sports moving forward. Fucking hell, Miguel. <laughs> Uh, I mean, to be fair, I did point out in the beginning of the topic that uh, that uh, I am open to suggestions about uh, the episode, so I suppose this is him giving me suggestions. So, not a knock on Miguel. Uh, I'm very grateful, actually, for your for your input, for your interest and in, uh, improving this show. And I'm definitely going to examine this topic uh, in great detail. But a quick answer would be is just uh, the geopolitical situation in, in the Caucasus, and uh, the his, like uh, its history, and uh, its uh, cultural aspects. Uh, in that, uh, it's a region that uh, was always uh, resisting uh, subjugation by Russia, and as such, uh, it's uh, and uh, historically, it's uh, it's uh, cultivated, uh, I suppose, 
bit of a warrior culture. So natural combat sports uh, would be something that uh, many many men in that region would gravitate towards and something that uh, people respect in general. As to why they produce so many high-level talents is that just basically just the economical situation. I mean, combat sports are a, are a form of social... Uh, are one of the more efficient um, forms of social mobility uh, in the world in general. And the Russian government provides many uh, perks and... Uh, provide support for combat sports athletes across the country. Like, for example, high-level wrestlers uh, frequently receive uh, apartments. Uh, they receive benefits uh, at universities. They they win cars. They win property, essentially. So it's a rewarding activity, and it's preferable to just living... Not to sound presumptuous, but it's uh, certainly preferable than living in the village and bumfuck nowhere doing doing nothing. Which is something that I am doing right now. Uh, if you didn't know, to to those of my listeners I, uh, that didn't know, I actually live in a village <laughs> in Siberia, in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I have nothing. The only, uh, well, if there wasn't, uh, if I didn't live during the internet age, I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't be able to communicate with you and improve my knowledge to such an extent that I would be able to, uh, well, make this show. But that's a TLDR. And it's kind of a... Really, all these situations, all these um, uh, things that uh, relate to an unusual amount of, uh, say, demographic that is very good at uh, at an activity, any form of activity, just has to do with... Uh, history and culture and your, your geographical location in many respects. I mean, it's just common sense, basically. But yeah, definitely going to examine that one in in, uh, in more exhaustive detail, because it deserves it. It's also a question that incidentally ties uh, back to the very first question that I uh, presented in the beginning of the podcast that uh, concerns my culture, uh, that is uh, Mongolian culture. So it's uh, very fun. It's very, very, very cool. That uh, warms my heart. It warms my heart that people are interested in learning all this stuff. This is how combat sports should be. You know, this is uh, the sports is, is is a a very effective mechanism of connecting cultures and making people interested in uh, different cultures. There are, of course, caveats to this because uh, it may lead some. Uh, less learned people to jump to conclusions and just uh, boil everything down to bro science. It's just, oh yeah, this... Uh, uh, well, I did say that uh, certain regions have a warrior culture ingrained in them. Uh, it has many asterisks uh, above each word, above each word that I've said. It's uh, because when you really think about there isn't such a thing as a warrior culture, because warrior culture is just... In the way that they're frequently portrayed in media and literature, they wouldn't function at all. They're non-functional. It's just a... It's a sentiment. It's an idea. And uh, many people, like, uh, for example, people like someone like, uh, let's say, Brandon Schaub or Joe Rogan just jump to conclusions and boil everything down. Oh, it's a... It's a... Just a hard land. Uh, boosts, uh, bo- boosts testosterone, you know? 
Ah, oh, Dagestanis uh, actually don't bend over when they pick up stuff. They squat, and squats in increase testosterone levels, and that's why they're all so hardy and hairy and... <laughs> and that's why Mongolians have beards, while other Asians suffer from a lack of facial hair. They actually lift lots of hairy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck am I talking about? <laughs> uh, I don't actually believe in all this crap. <laughs> Just a disclaimer. But yeah, what, what I was going for is that... Uh, just you have to be careful when you're examining uh, other people's history. Because it's a, it's a very nuanced uh, thing to study. There's lots of nuance. Everything... Uh, Everything has some sort of a caveat. Everything has some sort of a like a weird background thing that ties back to the other background thing, and it's just a giant mess of uh, interconnected uh, webs of intrigue, uh, molding an entire culture's uh, entire people's culture. It's very difficult, is what I'm trying to say, and it's uh, like to go off topic a little bit. Recently, I've been thinking about uh, I've been uh, thinking about that. I saw a post about a game called Pathologic, which is uh, uh, not related to combat sports in any way, shape or form, save for the topic of cultures that I've uh, been talking about, uh, rambling about for the past 10 minutes, and uh, it blatantly uses the Buryat culture, my culture, as a, uh, uh, as a form of world building, with all the serial numbers filed off. Like it's a it's a game that's been uh, g given uh, an enormous pub publicity boost recently due to reviews from people like H Bomber Guy and uh, Lord Mandalo. Uh, the reviews were excellent, by the way. Not a knock on them, and uh, the game itself is very interesting. It's a it's a game that uh, that is close to many people's hearts. It explores very interesting concepts, and it's a very artsy sort of game that's with a very deep narrative, but. I have a massive bone to pick with this game because uh, basically just uh, it takes my language, an existing language that is, well, it's a language that is dying, but uh, it's a language that actual people speak. It's still in use in some regions. And it's just called step language. It's not, uh, it's, uh, and it's not something that, uh, uh, to my knowledge, it's not something that the developers team alluded to. It's not something that's been publicized very broadly uh, it's not some because uh, the entire discord service is dedicated to people deciphering quote unquote that language most of them foreigners most of them Americans and other ways uh, a lot of them are Russians and none of them really like uh, really like uh, point out that this is actually an existing language well some of them do but none of them really explore the implications of that and it, the developers didn't hire, to my knowledge, they didn't hire actual actors, actual Buryat-speaking actors to vocalize those lines and uh, consult them on, on, the, on the language and to consult with the locals on their use of the language and the culture. Some people would disagree with me. Some people would say, oh, all forms of uh, representations are great, and even if it's uh, in this form. But like the Buryat people stand-ins in that game are either... Inhuman worms, inhuman mutant worms, same face one man, 
That's uh, just uh, it looks like a, just an army of clones of that look like look the same, and uh, just uh, and uh, the model for a woman is just one uh, is one is just a a lady in rags that wears nothing, uh, wears essentially just rags, torn 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 up rags, and uh, I mean I, I understand having technical constraints where you can't actually like uh, make distinct models for every NPC, but. Uh, you know, worms. <laughs> Anthropomorphic worms. Not very nice. The game does make important points about the history of mistreatment of indigenous Asians in Russia, which is uh, something that uh, the person who made that post uh, pointed out, which I appreciate. But, like, it could, could have been handled a lot better. Like... Some of the roles in development could have been taken by actual Buryats, you know, like I've said. You could have, could at least hire consultants. And if you point this out, like, uh, if I made this observation in Russian, I'd get dogpiled by frothing at the mouth fanboys denying that the game is even about the Buryat people. Especially since the game received such a publicity boost from Mandalore, which, is, uh, which makes criticizing the game essentially sacrilege, because it's uh, just, it looks like me knocking down a uh, an underdog developer because it's a perfect storm it's a, the, the game's creation is sort of a perfect storm uh like compounding factors that uh, uh exacerbate the situation where you can't actually criticize it because it's a smaller game small developer unique aesthetic equals underdog must be protected at all costs but yeah the developers essentially attempted to file as many serial numbers as they could of the step culture Correctly assuming that most of the Russian players won't play, pay close attention, and most Westerners doubly so. And trying to bring attention to it now would just get get you labeled a weirdo slacktivist, trying to knock an underdog developer down for seeking inspiration for, from a unique source, and said unique source being my own people, whose culture is currently being systematically eradicated by the Russian government, and the Chinese government in Inner Mongolia, for that matter. And I mean... Westerners, uh, like a bomber guy, like uh, for all his uh, uh, interest in uh, equality and all that stuff, didn't really examine the world in depth, and uh, did, did just his take was essentially an orientalistic uh, idea of this uh, that that the step culture is this fun alien world. It's a weird alien world where weird people live, and uh, because it doesn't know anything uh, about uh, the actual step cultures that live in Central and Northern Asia, and doesn't uh, didn't bother reading about them. To them, it's not rooted in reality. So it's uh, he didn't. Uh, it's to, to him, it's not a criticism at all. I mean, Westerners still use the word Mongol to to insult each other, not realizing that uh, the, the Mongolic people, the Mongolian people, are still around. You know, <laughs> so really, why I'm not surprised in the slightest that uh, to them, a nomadic step culture is just uh, fun and alien, uh, and uh, it's not something that's at all rooted in reality. Like if you open the page for. Uh, step language on the Gamepedia page of uh, for Pathologic. There's a dictionary, and that dictionary is just basically a word for word <laughs> English to Buryat dictionary, which I suppose it's a is, is a kind of 
funny that uh, there actually aren't any that any extensive English to Buryat dictionaries in the web available in the web, but uh, here you have <laughs> a dictionary presented in the game. But what what irks me in particular is that uh, it just doesn't mention it doesn't. Uh, what irks me in particular is that uh, neither the fandom nor the developers point towards my culture as a source of inspiration. They just it's a, a tr- it's it's a little line under the the trivia segment. Oh oh yeah, and uh, here's some some dying culture that lives in northern in eastern Siberia in northern Asia that's going to uh, assimilate into. Uh, assimilate with Russians and die off so soon. It doesn't matter. I mean, something that keeps happening all the time with the smaller cultures, such as uh, smaller, in giant quotes, of course. Smaller does not mean less relevant to the history of the world or the world at large. Uh, Such as uh, a culture such as the Maori people, the Polynesians, and, uh, like, say, for example, uh, for another example, as... uh, the indigenous peoples of Canada, etc., etc. Some white boy can straight up rip one of those cultures' creation myth off the baton and get showered with praise for originality. No one would bet an eye, because there's a bit of a cultural bias going on. Because uh, those cultures are smaller, and thus less relevant. And so, presumably, in the minds of those people, of these people, it gives. Uh, Creators can't blanch to, to just rip off cultures and credit no one, or just uh, avoid employing uh, indigenous people as, uh, as at least consultants. Like the developers could have used their platform because they were interested in exploring the themes of uh, indigenous Asians being oppressed in Russia and how the cultural clash uh, affects the uh, collective consciousness of uh, said peoples. But they didn't actually bother. Didn't actually bother to uh, provide real examples. Uh, examples of that happening. They could have easily set the game somewhere in Buretia and uh, just made it a little bit of a magical realism sort of deal. You know, uh, they could have brought attention to the problems, to the actual real issues uh, that. Uh, I actually face every day in the world, and they didn't do that. Because they probably thought that it's going to be inconvenient, or it's going to affect sales, or whatever. I mean, for a given value of uh, affecting sales, because it's an indie game, and uh, it's an artsy game, it's at times an impenetrable game. So really, if you're... At this point, you just shouldn't be worried about uh, alienating a part of your audience, I think. If you go, if you dive into such questions, you just, in my opinion, you must go full hog. Oh yeah, how is that relevant to the uh, questions of, uh, to the topic of combat sports that I've been examining? Is that uh, you get the same sort of deal in uh, fight promotions and uh, in the way that uh, fans talk about fighters. Right, I, I'm I'm moving away from the Q and A thing for for the time being. I, 
I would apologize for this, but this is a very important topic. You know, I was actually very worried about talking, speaking about this, but I, it's something that's uh, very dear to me. It's a topic that's very uh, deeply, that I feel very strongly about, and I, and I was worried about alienating viewers and listeners, and uh, I kind of, uh, I kind of figured, well, if my listeners are going to take umbrage with me speaking about. Uh, the topics of uh, preservation of cultures, then do I really, do I really want to have listeners such as these? You know, because overall the fight sides stands. Uh, I hope I won't uh, step on uh, at Gallo's toes here by saying that the fight side is uh, promotes equality and uh, is a big proponent of social justice because sports should be a form of uh, connecting the world. It's uh, top athletes from all across the world competing at the highest level, uh, and it's supposed to... It's not supposed to engender uh, bigotry or cultural chauvinism or xenophobia. In fact, it should promote the friendship between various peoples living across the world. Uh, it's not always that way in practice, sadly, but uh, it's something that should be... Uh, it's a cause worth fighting for, in my opinion. Because, as I've pointed out, sports are, are uh, one of the only actually working uh, forms of social mobility for uh, minorities uh, or otherwise marginalized groups, or, for example, people who are poor. And the way people sometimes talk about fighters is just, uh, and uh, athletes in general, I think I've pointed this out on the bo one of the bonus episodes. Well, the only bonus episodes I've put out so far is that there is a problem where at some point you start talking about athletes as meat. You just basically dehumanize them. And uh, that's why uh, propping up and... Uh, talking about the culture from which the fighter originates or athlete originates is very important in order to keep him humanized keep them humanized whether uh, he or, whether it's a he or she or, or I don't know uh, uh, that's why Miguel's question is so interesting because and so um, and, uh, and that's why it's uh, worth examining in uh, precise detail because it shows that people genuinely are interested in learning about uh, why a certain culture produces uh, so many athletes or what what uh, makes uh, athletes from different regions stand apart from other athletes. Like, for example, let's say, uh, to provide a very distinct example is just, uh, it's, it's uh, well, the Cuban school of boxing it's very distinct. And there are cultural and historical and geopolitical reasons for that. So you have to always keep that thing in mind, you know? Well, since I've... Uh, well, I suppose this brings us back to the question of, uh, about uh, Mongolian wrestlers and sumo and uh, just Mongolian athletes and fighters in general. And, uh, well, uh, we're already 
running past the 15-minute mark, so um, uh, it's something that I'm going to examine in either one of the follow-up episodes or uh, bonus episodes, uh, which uh, hopefully... uh, which is... I I think... I think I'm going to... uh, I may even attempt to record one of the... uh, an extended answer to one of those questions uh, during this week, or maybe the beginning of... uh, the next week, but uh, yeah, for the time being, it's a uh, why you as to why, yeah, I do follow. Well, <sighs> I'm sorry, I need to get my brain together, uh, I need to get, I need to concentrate. We veered way off topic, so I apologize for that. Now, the very first question after the Mongolian one was uh, from a Discord patron was a Discord patron with the nickname Sigman and uh, he asked me do sumo wrestlers count as fighters? Well, the answer is very easy. Yes, they do count as fighters because the way, I mean, your mileage may vary but uh, all f- uh, sumo is a contact sport it's a, it's a full contact sport uh, that with the uh, uh, with incredible depth, and any full contact sport with a, with with such depth deserves to be called a combat sport. It deserves to be called a form of fighting. And the follow-up question was, uh, do I follow any sumo? And uh, uh, he knows, uh, do you follow any sumo? I know most, uh, most of the best uh, rikshi I know Mon- Mongolian. Well, that's, uh, that has to do with, uh, once again, geopolitical situations, uh, uh, in Japan and Mongolia, and uh, cultural backgrounds. Uh, Mongolia has a very storied, storied tradition of wrestling called uh, Boch. Uh, in Borat Mongolian it's called Bokhebarildan. Explaining the matter and the history of the sport is going to take a very long time, so I'm going to answer that in a follow- one of the follow-up episodes, as I've uh, already said. And... Uh, it's uh, it's uh, somewhat has to do with the waning popularity of uh, combat sports in uh, Japan. Well, uh, you may argue with this, but uh, in general, I mean, as a society, Japan is more geared towards uh, uh, scholastic and financial success uh, through education and various other smarty pants ways of uh, making money rather than, uh, you know fighting <laughs> or wrestling. Many of the most accomplished uh, rikishi, such as, uh, for example, Asashoryu or Hakho, have had an extensive, uh, either an extensive training or an extensive background in uh, national Mongolian wrestling, which, uh, it's, a, it's essentially a national pastime. Everyone wrestled at some point or another uh, in Mongolia. It's just just something that people do. And uh, good wrestlers are greatly respected uh, in Mongolian society. That's why uh, uh, an enormous amount of uh, the male population had had wrestled at some point in their lives at uh, various levels. And when you get such a such a such a fertile ground for uh, athletes to compete in. Uh, with uh, with it being encouraged by the culture itself, of course you're going to get some extraordinary athletes. 
And as to the question of whether I do, whether I follow any sumo, I sometimes, I, I would sometimes sit down and watch a, a basho, uh, but uh, it's not something that's a, uh, it's not a sport that I've followed very extensively, which is something that I may wish to rectify in the future because it's very fun and reasonably easy to follow as long as you familiarize yourself with the with the terminology, which is not that hard. Yod asks, why is Mongolian throat singing so cool? Uh, I mean, it warms my heart that people are so in, that people on the Discord were so interested in learning more about uh, my people. I mean, the answer should be self-evident because uh, well, you make weird sounds when you when you throat sing, and it sounds cool. That, that's why it's cool. But I suppose there is a historical reason uh, for that because it, it's the theory goes uh, that uh, herders would use would imitate the sounds that uh, various animals uh, would make in order to uh, well facilitate herding animals, and then it sort of snowballed from there into various techniques, uh, schools of schools of singing, and uh, things like that. All right, last one for today. And uh, we'll, we'll, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, I want to know why the fuck most MMA fans, fighters, coaches, commentators, etc. are terrible analysts and don't understand the technical side of the sport. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Not going easy on me, are you? It's... <sighs> the theme of this episode was questions that warrant an entire episode or an article... And that that uh, and thinking about these questions actually gave me a headache. <laughs> oh, they're all they're all very deep and all require very extensive answers. Let's settle for the time being by saying that uh, most of MMA fans, fighters, coaches, commentators, etc., are dumb as fuck, because people in general are dumb as fuck. I hope this is a satisfying answer for now. Wow. Yeah, this was a fun one. I mean, I I would say that I should do this more often, but uh, this single session gave me enough material to last me a month. Maybe more. <laughs> I mean, uh, this one was mostly a patron-centric uh, episode, obviously, but uh, I, I, I'd wager that uh, this was an enjoyable enough listen for... Uh, for my other listeners that are otherwise not in the Discord, I hope this made you at least consider joining it, <laughs> joining our Patreon. You get to meet, uh, acquaint yourself with and converse with people who do not ask easy questions and uh, are always down for a, an intelligent, in-depth discussion about... Uh, very interesting topics. So this one really made made me appreciate our community that much more. So a giant round of thanks to all of you. Yeah, regretfully, I was not able to answer all questions, uh, or indeed answer. Uh, to, at least I feel like I haven't been able to answer the questions to to an extent that I would be satisfied with the answer, but. Uh, 
I hope this was fun enough. And uh, I do want to explore a lot of them uh, in the, in depth in the follow-up episodes. I'm currently thinking about whether to make a sort of a Q&A part 2 for this session in particular, or, or to make different separate episodes covering each topic separately. I'm going to think about that. Yeah, all thanks goes to our patrons. And, all, and uh, of course, all thanks goes to our sponsors, such as Bavada, where you can get at $150 signing bonus. Please bet responsibly. Check out Hyperfly for all your grappling needs and various other combat sports needs. And visit the fight side to check out uh, newest articles on, and uh, all the articles that we've written on combat sports. The fight site is your one-stop shop for all things combat. And check out ExpressVPN for personal internet protection, which becomes which is becoming more and more relevant in the modern day. I don't know why I've said the fight site before the, the ExpressVPN thing, but, uh, you know, I hope it's evident that it's not a sponsor. <laughs> I hope you didn't misclick and wasted an entire hour of your time thinking about what, what, thinking about who the fuck is that guy and what the fuck is he talking about. But uh, if you did, I hope this was entertaining enough and uh, it made you interested in uh, what we are going to produce next. So uh, stay tuned for the for. Uh, the follow-up episodes and uh, any articles that me or my colleagues may put out on the topics discussed and uh, the upcoming fights. Yeah, this was a, this was a fun one. See ya, Dachin, also trä